knowledge that we are gathered on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We want to recognise that we are recording and telling our stories on the stolen land of our country's first storytellers. We wish to pay our respects to all Wurundjeri elders and ancestors and to extend that respect to any First Nations peoples who listen to Emsolation. We recognise Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's continued connection to the land and waters of this country and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. Always was, always will be. Well, hello there and welcome to Emsolation. My name is Em Rossiano. I'm a writer, a singer, a stand-up comedian, a maximalist power queen, a neurodivergent magic brain, and together with my best friend since I was 11, award-winning screenwriter Michael Lucas, I bring you this podcast every week. How are you? If you're new here and you're wondering, oh yeah, what has Michael Lucas written? Why has he won awards? Well, let me tell you, he wrote a little show called Offspring. Yeah, he's the man responsible for Patrick, you know, leaving this earthly realm. He also wrote, created, EP'd, did everything except star in the smash hit Newsreader. Mm-hmm, yeah, that one. He also wrote Five Bedrooms. He wrote on Rosehaven. Look, this man has been everywhere. All the awards and accolades are totally deserved. So just a little, you know, bio. Sometimes I know I say that he's an award-winning writer and, you know, you're like, oh, yeah, prove it to me. Well, hopefully you feel that. Like, I don't know why I am bigging him up. Uh, if you are a regular listener of Emsolation, you'll know that over the weekend the betrayal occurred. That's right. Michael Lucas attended Beyonce's concert in London after having purchased the tickets in secret a month ago and he broke it to me on the podcast. There's a lot to catch up on if you haven't caught up. But he did go to the show over the weekend. I woke up to many videos. It seems he had a wonderful time. We haven't actually spoken about it yet because we were saving it for the podcast. But he um, he and I are not doing a podcast this week because I'm coming to you live from under my Duna cover. <laughs> I'm trying to put on a brave voice, but I don't think it's working. I've had COVID since last Friday. And it has invaded every cell of my being. Season two of COVID is, look, it's a strong one, has a strong plot line. (laughs) It's really taken me out. So I was unable to get into the studio this week. Michael and I will be back next week to discuss the concert in full, but we're holding off actually chatting on the phone about it. (laughs) Look, we're dedicated to our craft and our art, if nothing else. Yes, podcasting can be called art. How dare you for raising an eyebrow? I'll keep it brief because I imagine my voice is not sounding, you know, I think we've gone past sexy phone operator. Do they even have those anymore because of the internet? I remember being obsessed with the idea of the the phone, the sex line that people could call and a woman would probably sit there folding her washing for the week but putting on her voice. I sound more like Carlotta, don't I? <laughs> I digress. Today's chat is wonderful. I'm joined by the youngest ever senator to be in uh, sitting in Australian Parliament. I speak of the Green Senator, Jordan Steele-John. He is passionate and driven and I believe totally bullshit free on most fronts. Honestly, sitting with a politician for over an hour in the past has been quite challenging for me, but I felt like Jordan didn't block me on any question. He answered as best he could. He was direct 
And I also walked away feeling so relieved to have a champion like Senator Jordan Steele-John for the NDIS, the National Disability Insurance Scheme. For any of you who have a child with disabilities or if you are in the scheme yourself, you'll know that it is a system that is, well, it kind of feels like it's designed to work against us at times. Jordan is in there fighting for it, fighting against the cuts. He's also behind the Senate inquiry that's about to close, that's happening into ADHD, and he really wants to address what people with ADHD are being given and the gap to what they actually need from the government. He was wonderful, and I know you're going to love it, and um, that's enough from me (laughs) and my voice. I hope you're all well. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, you are so welcome. Please go back and listen to our back catalogue, and you can also subscribe. We have an Emsolation Extra service provider, not like the 90s phone line, but look, you pay enough, you never know what you might get from me in your inbox. Oh, God, that sounded ominous. (laughs) All the information can be found at emsolation.supercast.com. All right, please enjoy my chat with Senator Jordan Steele-John. Play the music. Insulation. Disabled and proud. Straight off the bat, your background. Yeah, I'm just trying to get the whole thing in while also, yeah, that's that's that'll do. I love that. My lizard brain wants to say Jordan John Steele's so bad. You don't understand. I, that how. is so okay. <laughs> no, it's not. not. Okay. I get so many combinations <laughs> of my name. Jordan John Steele, Steele John Jordan. It's, um, I don't know why, well, I just have to really stop, put the handbrake on and say it the right way around. And as someone who's grown up with Emilia Rossiano, you can only imagine what people have done to that name. So, no. Well, they said it correctly, <laughs> spelled it correctly, always is absolutely <laughs> what I imagine they've done. Senator Jordan Steelejohn of the Greens, youngest member of parliament, Proud disabled man. Welcome. Welcome. Proud disabled person. Can we start there? I read your piece, Growing Up Disabled in Australia, and it made me cry. Oh. No, no. I think you made me realise my own internalised ableism. And Uh I think the piece, and everyone needs to read it, you, you, you in a way indirectly recognised, and you're a man who lives with cerebral palsy, you use a chair in your everyday life, you have a visible disability, no one would argue with you and say you're not disabled enough, which is something my community gets a lot in terms mm. of the neurodivergent community. But for me, if even someone who has a visible disability but this is a strange combo because you were brought up by such an extraordinary woman. Yes, indeed. That's why you had internalised ableism, for lack of a better term, around your disability. You didn't view yourself as disabled. Can you talk to that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Like I think 
as disabled people who are like born into a world that is constructed, controlled by overwhelmingly by rich, white, able-bodied blokes, right? Yeah. We're, we're born, in my case, uh, with with bodies uh, and with your in your case with brains uh, that function in ways that divert from the norm, mm -hmm. right? And the no understanding in this context, the norm is constructed. It's mm. a it's a social contract. It doesn't actually exist. Mm -mm. Um, and so from that moment that we come into the world with our different bodies and different brains, we are told by people in positions of power that we are somehow broken, somehow lesser, um, and that for normal people, inverted commas, normal, normal people, mm -hmm. uh, we will be, you know, inconvenience, burden, uh, you, you know, heavy upon them. Mm. Um not what they would have wanted, mm. right? Uh, and this is absolutely not true, but this is what we're told. Um, and so we all, in some way or another, um, kind of take that into ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a lifetime's journey in some ways to uh, to pull it out of ourselves and to push back on it. Now, what my mum did was give me such a strong sense of self, um, as somebody who'd been a social worker for 20 years in the UK, um, as somebody who had worked with kids that had not kind of, to use the phrase, like had not fit, they were the square pegs that didn't fit in the round holes. Mm -hmm. And either they just didn't fit or when someone was banging, you know, banging on their heads, trying to bash them into the holes, mm -hmm. it shaped the corners off. And so she never wanted it to happen to me and never wanted that to happen to my brother. And so I was homeschooled mm -hmm. uh, and, and developed that strong sense of self. But still, but still, you live in a world that says you're, you're different, you're broken, you're lesser. Um, and so the way I kind of processed that was going like, Disability is part of who I am, but it doesn't define me. You know, I'm like doing that hokey cokey dance, and it wasn't until I met part of part of the journey of of moving from that identity into being a proud disabled person was meeting neurodivergent people, particularly neurodivergent women, who a very good friend of mine said to me when I met them ten years ago, and I did this whole spiel very proudly. You know, disability is part of who I am, but it doesn't define me. And they were like, cool, Jordan, um, but you just said you're a person with disability. That's like me saying I'm a person with womanness. Like, <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. And no matter how much you're positive about having a disability or about, about like, having a positive outlook on life, no amount of, like, I can do it will turn the staircase into a ramp. <laughs> so you've got to have a more systemic view. <laughs> um than that and that was really part of my journey mm. like the beginning of that process oh my goodness I feel uncomfortable identifying as disabled and I officially qualify in two categories yeah but I feel like I don't deserve to occupy that space or take up the oxygen in that room and I know a lot of other neurodivergent people feel the same yeah they absolutely do and I'm not sure if I'm doing a disservice to the ND community by not occupying that space or am I taking up oxygen from other people who are more profoundly disabled? Do you see what I mean? So when... Oh, I absolutely do, yeah. I'm not sure, Jordan, and this is why I really wanted to talk to you, but just as two people who don't fit the norm, but, you know, when mm. people look at us, you're in a chair, 
I am disorganised and blunt and I think when people look at us, they're like, well, Jordan is disabled and he's fine to occupy that space, of course, but I challenge people's notions of that. So I, I don't know. Do you know do, can you... <laughs> Can you help me navigate these very intense feelings right now? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I, can, I can give it a red hot go. Like, I, I think first of all, the first thing I would say to you, Em, is however you feel about yourself and your identity, like that is okay and that is valid. Wherever you are on the journey as somebody who is neurodivergent um, from, you know, the internalized ableism that you pick up mm. from the moment you come into that world, um, to, you know, wherever you are in your self-identification process, that's valid. Mm-hmm. And so if you're out there listening to this uh, as, a, as a neurodivergent person that identifies as being disabled, fantastic. If you're out there, you know, somebody from the community that doesn't feel that way, that is also okay and good. Because the first and foremost, like the first piece of this is what makes us as people feel empowered, mm-hmm. right? Um, so if you find identifying as a disabled person empowering, do. If you don't yet, like, that's also okay. Um, mm-hmm. I would say that for me, um, I, I am very comfortable with people that are neurodiverse um, identifying as disabled people because um, to me, I go like, my body don't function the way that. <laughs> I don't, why am I doing that accent? My body don't function the way. I I'm love saying, it. You've got full Dick I'm, Van Dyke, Mary Poppins. Yeah, I, I really have, <laughs> eh? I'm living love the life. <laughs> anyway, let's pull this back slightly. I don't, so my body doesn't function in the way that is expected to, right, mm. by the societal norm. Mm. And that therefore, as part of that divergence from the norm, I am part of a broader community that mm. have a similar divergence of 4 million people in Australia mm. that identify as disabled. So I'm part of that community. I'm also um, a person that like requires different uh, modifications, supports, changes to that status quo um, to support me to be able to participate in society, right? Mm. And in my brain, to my thought process, um, somebody who's neurodivergent in whatever way, um, like there's similarities there, right? Like it's not the body, it's the brain, mm. but there's still a requirement. There's still a membership of a community of people that share a similar experience. And there's still, there's also a need for modification and change mm. to the environment, mm-hmm. to the society, to the culture, to enable people's rightful participation. So I see that link. And therefore, the more people that identify as disabled, to me, I'm like, great, there's more people in the game. <laughs> we can work together towards a shared, like, goal. One of the most important women in my life is she's my production manager, my EA, Jem. She's uh, also lives with cerebral palsy. And she is the fiercest. Like she, Because t- her whole life has been advocacy, basically for herself. Yeah, yeah. Like... There's this. I feel like there's this idea around the disabled community that they're not fierce advocates and that they need. I don't know. I, I just feel like you and her, everyone I've ever met, Ellie Dimashelier as well. Yeah. The fiercest community possible, and I just I would be honoured to be a part of that community. But for me, it's more 
it's more like a, a an imposter syndrome. I don't know. It's like, yeah, yeah. do you know what I mean? So, of course, and I, my son is autistic and more severely autistic than me and a lot of people I care about and I am technically in the disabled community and then I've become more aware of your work and I'm just... I want you to know, and I and I know this may come across as toy, but when I told people I was talking to you, the first thing I got back was please thank him. Because, oh wow! Well, you must be aware you're the first person in federal politics to actually have lived experience in mm. the areas you're advocating for or you want to see changes in. And we have a habit in this country of say, you know, putting men in as the minister for women. Yeah. Yes. And, you know. That was a bad thing we shouldn't do again. <laughs> that was wild. But I think you are a prime example of what can happen when, you know, the, the person with lived experience of the issue they're trying to change and make better, when that comes together, shit happens. Good shit happens for that community. And everyone just wanted to say, you, you don't have to do this. Like, you don't have to advocate for ADHD. Yet you are, and I guess I wanted to ask you, why are you bothering with us <laughs> when you... There's so many bigger things that you're in charge of, especially, like, reforming the NDIS entirely. You've come to the aid of 500,000 of us, but there's way more. There's so many people who are just self-identifying because it's too hard to get the diagnosis, which we'll talk to. Why did you decide ADHD would get your special love and attention? Well, I think, look, first of all, thank you so much. I've got to reflect a bit of this. (laughs) But like your, particularly M, your speech at the National Press Club, um, I I watched that, my mum watched that particularly, and she had her moment of, oh, wow, that's me, um, and began her ADHD diagnosis journey based on that experience, and that has been huge for for mum. Um, so I've got to like reflect back to you the incredible impact that your work has had, mm. not only on my family, but so many people we work with uh, in this space reflect that back to us. Um, and I think, you know, part of what is wonderful, part of what I am really excited about in terms of the work that we've been able to do, uh, myself and my team and the Greens in this space uh, has been to build like to build and to contribute to the building of a disability pride movement over the past four or five years, um, particularly. We've really, uh, we've really emphasized that. You might've got a sense of that from the massive disabled (laughs) banner behind me. Um, But part of what that has been about is about bringing together this community of 4 million people Mm. across Australia um, who are both subject to incredible discrimination at the hands of an ableist society and an ableist power structure and have also the most incredible power, mm-hmm. the most incredible capacity uh, for innovation and for collaboration and community building. I've uh, demonstrated that again and again and again. And as part of that process, uh, part of that building that movement, we've had the opportunity to work with so many incredible neurodivergent activists and advocates um, who have contributed, I think, to that disability movement discourse, a real clear, biting critique of cultural norms and the way that cultural norm and practice 
perpetuates power. Mm. And uh, particularly an analysis of why neurodivergent women mm. and people that basically are, you know, aren't cis men who are neurodivergent, are particularly are subject to so much uh, incredibly unacceptable pushback mm -hmm. uh, because of the way in which that community challenges the fundamental cultural power structure mm. uh, of, of our society. And as part of that work, we continually heard from people the incredible barriers that folks with ADHD experienced as part of accessing support, well, so-called support systems, the medical system, the, the assessment, diagnosis, medication processes. We kept again and again hearing the, about these barriers. And so really as part of building that disability pride movement, we decided, you know, it really is time to go to that particular part of the community and go, what's happening? What's going on here? What's <laughs> you did. Of, yeah, you did. systems and processes. And mm. that's, that's why we kind of put the survey uh, mm. into... Uh, put the survey into the world and the extent of the response mm. was was just incredible. So from that we went, right, we're going to get our get our teeth into this and we're going to champion change together with the community. The survey... Yeah, 10,000 respondents within a couple of weeks when you're only expecting, you know, 1,000 in a month yeah. is extraordinary. But I'm amazed you got 10,000 because if you ask people like me to fill out surveys, we'll just like, that's like, ugh. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, imagine totally. all the people who gave up. Like, I'm amazed you got 10,000, which just goes to show it's such an underserviced area. And I know when I was giving the speech when I was asked to give it, I felt the pressure of this community that doesn't get a platform very often. And, you know, I'm just so grateful that someone like you is putting your significant, like your relentless Jordan, you just, you just give zero fucks about anything that gets in your way. It's so rare in politics. I, I can't tell you. And all of us are just like hanging on to your coattails going, fuck yes, keep going, please. <laughs> so I think, you know, you've done the, you did the survey and the, the takeaways, when I read your takeaways, I was like, yeah, obviously. So, you know, the cost, yeah. the length of time it takes and also just being believed. And my own, oh, my own experience with that is like it's potluck. If you get, if you can get into a psychiatrist in this country, that's amazing. But if you are unlucky enough to get an older male psychologist who's not yeah. up to date with the DSM, which is a lot of them, the first yeah. psych I saw basically said that he doesn't believe women experience autism and it's usually like borderline personality disorder or, or something else. So that for me is so scary that if you go to a GP, especially as a woman, it's potluck on if that GP is up to date with recent medical advancements, you know, in, in recognising ADHD or if they yeah. even believe in it beyond 10-year-old boys. So that's, yeah. for me, Jordan, that's unacceptable. And the first line of defence that being able to go to a medical professional and be believed, and I love doctors and I know doctors are doing their best and I know they're very, you know, they're under the pump at the moment. But that for me feels like the first thing that needs to change. How do we, yeah, how? <laughs> How, 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 how? Um, I, so I think first first thing I'd say is it is absolutely unacceptable, right? Uh, going to a medical professional, having that experience is not okay. 
Um, and I'd say that as the Greens uh, health spokesperson. And, you know, if anyone's got a problem with that, you know, come at me. It's not like that's not. There he is. There he is. <laughs> that's not an acceptable way to treat a patient, right? No. It's not an acceptable way to treat a person. Mm. Um, and through the course of the survey, we heard from many people mm. um, who had had some really bad experiences from, mm. uh, from the medical system uh, where they had been dismissed which is not okay, uh, which they had seen, you know, basically had the experience of um, you, you're basically the GP had said you, you are, you know, not a young boy, mm -hmm. therefore you can't have ADHD, which is not true mm -hmm. and not okay. Mm -hmm. uh, we had the pe people share with us that they had um, gone, for, um, gone for assessment and or indeed for prescriptions around medications. Mm -hmm. um, people said, oh, I don't want to be known as that kind of doctor, you know, that gives out that, those kind of medications. Mm. That's not acceptable. These types of medical stigma, not okay. Mm. And they are far too prevalent in our community. We also heard the financial barriers mm. being profound. Mm. You know, the cost of assessment running into thousands of dollars, mm -hmm. um, which is completely unattainable for many people we heard we heard of in fact there was one um one experience that really stuck in my mind was somebody that shared like a additional detailed story as part of the survey response mm. and they said they had been unable to access a diagnosis for five years during due to not having enough money mm. so they had to struggle through university getting their degree undiagnosed with their mental health deteriorating um then they had to try to get a job all before they could get their diagnosis right to get the degree to get the job to get the money to get the diagnosis and they summed it up as it was like being asked to climb a mountain um and the first half you're not allowed to wear any shoes mm. you know like and it, it, that really stuck with me is the injustice of this system is one where people often have to struggle so hard just to get the diagnosis before we can get to the medication just to get the diagnosis mm -hmm. and then if you are somebody that goes okay well the support for me looks like medication then you ram into needing to get a psych like a psychiatrist oh my god one, affording one yeah they're paying for the medication and then if you lose your or don't have a medicare card yeah the additional cost of the meds and it just goes up and up and up and that's why people often talk about the you know neurodiversity and disability being really expensive like it, it costs mm. money to be a neurodiverse person mm. and it's really like it's quite not okay mm -hmm. um it's a polite way of putting it and th these are the kind of things that i really hope this inquiry now mm. can investigate further can make recommendations to address these issues mm. and then together we can campaign the greens the disability community the neurodiverse community together mm. um to actually bring down these barriers can you explain so the the senate inquiry is currently happening uh, people have until june 3 is that right the 9th of June. 9th of June to, to, you know, fill out their lived experiences to, you know, inform and educate people who don't understand why something like ADHD should be added to the NDIS as a, a primary, you know, condition. Um, but the cynical among us are like, Canberra love a Senate inquiry. Like, they love it. It feels like a stalling tactic. It feels like, a, well, we looked into it and... Uh. Can you yes. let everyone know 
and me, I'm everyone. Yes, I'm aware. I'm talking to every person what, in Australia. Yeah, what change yeah. a Senate inquiry can actually affect. Do you know, you understand why people are cynical around. I do, I do. Yeah, what happens? What happens? Tell, tell us. Yeah, what happens? Yeah. Um, I really understand why people are cynical um, because, unfortunately, I spend a lot of my time working alongside politicians. <laughs> um, and you, you bang on, like... One of government's favourite responses is, you know, well, we've heard a lot about this. Uh, <laughs> it's very important uh, that we hear some more. So we're going to do an inquiry and then an inquiry and into an inquiry and so on, and then nothing ever happens. So Correct. I understand that cynicism. Yeah. Uh, what I would, what I, why I think, that, let me tell you why I kind of think this is different. Okay. Uh, we, we have a situation in Australia where if you look back over the last five years, um, and like kind of search for references to ADHD in the political space, mm. um, there literally is no substantive discussion of ADHD. Mm-hmm. Um, the reference in the official parliamentary record is like me um, <laughs> and then like me talking about it and then like a couple of other uh, like MPs just mentioning it in passing. A, a few of them to like deny that it exists. Oh, God. So, that's cool and normal, not at all, not okay. Um, So uh, there actually is a real, and there's been no debate in terms of legislation or bills or anything like this. So there actually is a need for a dedicated uh, parliamentary investigation so that we can take the community, basically the community feedback Mm. uh, and the demands for change that are building so effectively and basically have them recorded in an official space mm. or then translate into the creation of a set of recommendations. Now, mm. the the bit that I'll be really upfront with you about is that once we've gathered that information, kind of boiled it down into a report and a set of recommendations and gone, here, this is what we should do, mm. then there will be a moment of... Um, where, where the Greens, the disability community and the neurodivergent community will have to campaign together mm-hmm. to have those things implemented. Um, because, you know, it should be the case, given that, you know, we pay politicians a lot of money to apparently do a job, mm-hmm. uh, that it should be that, you know, we make the recommendations and then they just do the thing. Mm-hmm. But often there's there's the resistance, right, which there shouldn't be. But if there is in this circumstance, then we'll need to campaign for the outcome together. But there will finally be a document that says what everyone's been saying, like kind of in the community for so long, which is it needs to be on the NDIS. We need to make it free to have that notice under um, under Medicare, you know, all these other kind of things that we've been talking about for so long. It'll exist and we'll be able to campaign kind of on it together. Okay. So what you're saying is hold tight until we have the recommendations and then we go to war. That's that's exactly okay. what I was saying. Okay, I can that, do that. I, I think can you can do- take away from this, <laughs> you can take away from this, uh, Senator declares war on ableism. <laughs> I think that, that's a perfectly fair headline. <laughs> All right, <laughs> we'll call the podcast episode that. Yeah, yeah. No, please don't do that. As, as the uh, literally one of my portfolios is, Peace and <laughs> so if it's like peaceful and non-violent declaration, it's fine. Yeah, that'll be okay. <laughs> oh my goodness, I just I I have to deal with the NDIS for my son, and you're obviously right. I'm not even bothering for myself. Um, 
it's not a it's not a good experience. And I, and I and I and I love that my job enables me to give you that direct feedback. I mean, you don't run the NDIS; it's not your fault, but you know this obviously as a participant. And again, like how many federal politicians, how many senators are on the NDIS? Like, are you the only one? Well, so I'm actually not on the NDIS myself. Oh, you're not. I know, I know. I fall into this very grey area of people where, when the NDIS rolled out into my my area, mm. um, you get the kind of like the Hogwartian letter saying <laughs> it's now in your area. You can come and be on the thing. Yeah. Um, I that was the same year that I was elected. Oh. Um, and so because of all of the, the kind of craziness of life that developed. From there, it's always been on my like list of Stop things it. to do when I get a moment, uh, and so I've not. I've basically made sure that I've got the wheelchair that I need um, to to get around, yeah. and then everything else has just been go go like actually go go go. Try and use this role to to make it easier for other people to oh, access the NDIS and get the services and supports they need. So I've not yet taken the. <laughs> Um, well, let me tell you, sir, it's a shitty process. Oh, I know. And I, I don't, um, the, the hardest thing for me was being asked to exaggerate the worst attributes about my son's autism to try and get my son help. It was extremely yeah. traumatic and even getting a carer at the kinder with him. And Elio is, you know, he doesn't have a physical disability. His autism is, uh, you know, it's more, I guess, I don't even know what the right term is. He's, he more needs help with the social and um, sensory stuff. Yeah, it's an, in, it's an invisible disability. Yeah, his well. is. And to get someone at the kinder with him, we had to say that we thought he was a danger to himself or the other kids and that's the only way the kinder could get funding to have. And I just said, no, I'm not saying that because it's not yeah. true. So, yeah. so we, the kinder can't get funding to have someone there for my son who is on the NDIS, who qualified easily. Mm. And the only way, if I had have lied and had have said that about him and he's gentle and loving and he's not a danger and I just think... Why does it have to be the extremes to get a person who could, like the early intervention for him is going to make the rest of his life so so much easier, but we can't get that for him because he's not deemed dangerous enough. To me, that feels backwards. Uh, It's totally backwards and not okay and actually not how the NDIS was meant to function. Like you, often I talk about the NDIS as like our NDIS and Mm. when when I say that, what I mean is, it's a it's a scheme. It's a it's a support program mm. that was brought into existence because of the campaigning of disabled people, our families, and our allies. Mm. We brought this thing into existence. We campaigned for it. Nobody gave it to us out of the goodness of their own heart. Mm. We said, right, this is what we need uh, to be able to live. This old system is crap. We need something better. Mm. Um, and what we campaigned for uh, was a system. Um, that basically provided you the supports that you needed to live a good life, mm. uh, services and supports, um, and that those supports and services would be guided by three things. One, your lived experience. Mm. So what you as a disabled person um, know of your support needs. Two, your goals mm. and aspirations. So what do you want to achieve in your life? Let's get beyond just existing. Mm-hmm. Like a, 
existing. Mm. What do you want to actually do? Mm. Do you want to, you know, like what are educational things do you want to attain? What does it mean to have a fulfilled life to you? Mm. And number three, what medical evidence do you have to, that kind of that guides and supports and backs that up? Um, but critically, medical evidence that you have like attained or evidence of some other type that you've attained from a medical practitioner or other person that you trust mm -hmm. you have built a relationship with and who knows you and your needs and that my friend was meant to be it nothing <laughs> else mm. between and that's actually what we had in the initial trial sites where it was being rolled out mm. um and then the liberals got into government and they buggered it up Mm. Uh, because they are terrible, mm -hmm. uh, is my short political analysis <laughs> of the Liberal Party. Um, and now we have an opportunity um, to, now that they've been, you know, kind of flushed down the political toilet, to try to, to, to fix it. Um, but what I often see in the NDIS is systems that exist that have been built by politicians and bureaucrats who are not disabled people, um, that then we have to try to navigate. And one of them is exactly, as you've just described, the kind of the feeling, the culture that's created of you have to, um, you have to basically say that you're dangerous to get any kind of support if that support is like for, an, for a non-easily uh, recognised or traditional mm -hmm. uh, disability type. And that is just, it's just not, not okay. Um, to 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 uh, ask a parent to describe their child as dangerous um, is absolutely unacceptable. And then on the other side of it, of course, you've got this thing where often disabled people, when we're in an in assessing environment, mm. um, like, I don't know whether you might have a similar experience, but like somebody says, like, do you need help with that? Any reflexive response is like, no, I'm no. Fine. No, we mask. No, we uh, yeah, straight yeah. away masking comes in. Yeah, and also my awareness of what it, this room expects of me right now versus what I actually want and need. Like that's yeah. it is. It's definitely instinctual for sure. That I think yeah. yes. I didn't know. So, yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> so I mask too. Like I think masking is a mm -hmm. masking in that sense of like. Of like, uh, uh, yeah, no, no, I'm fine. I don't need help to do that. No, I don't want to be a burden. Um, I'm not a burden. What are you talking about? Yeah, <laughs> yeah totally. Yeah. So what that means is that you come out of your NDIS meeting mm. with not enough mm. because you've been, you've gone there on maybe a good day, mm. or you've gone there, you know, after something in your life has kind of made you start telling a story about the less support you need, mm. the more of a good person you are, <laughs> which is nonsense. Oh, yeah. That's not. Like, and we need to break that idea of like the best form of person is the individual man oh, who can just on their own, you know, stride out into the wilderness <laughs> and slash down a, I don't know, slash down a pigeon and eat it raw or whatever, whatever the hell that, that yeah. kind of meme of self-independence is mm. equals good. We've got to get rid of that. Um, because then what happens is if everyone's calibrated towards only funding people that, you know, sound dangerous, mm then people don't get the support they need. So, yeah, there's a whole bunch of shit we need to do um, to, to, um, 
to kind of fix that system. Um, <laughs> There's a yeah. whole bunch of shit. I've yeah, yeah. never that's heard a truer word spoken. That's the technical term. You're right. And I'm yeah, telling yeah. you, Jordan, every person, if they listening now, if they ever get an opportunity to vote for you in anything, you will be remembered as someone saying, yeah. There's a whole bunch of shit that needs to be fixed and I'm doing my best, guys. Like, that is so important oh, to hear is. from you, from a politician. It, you don't, I mean, I know you know, but fuck, to get, but, like, how do you, I feel overwhelmed. I don't have executive function, as we know, but how do you prioritise what to fix within the NDIS? Like, it feels like a big spit. Like, hey. what's, what, realistically, what do you think is the first thing that's going to, yeah. yeah, what do you reckon, like, is achievable and will happen first? Well, I think, first of all, I would say we've got to, like, bef- before you even get into, like, what's the first thing you need to do, you need to tackle this idea of, of achievability in government. Because <laughs> yeah. this is one of these nonsense things that the politicians and the major parties put out there. But well, we just can't do it. There's just not enough money, you know. Like it just it couldn't do it. And I, I, I'll just give you a quick example of what that looks like. Again and again, I, we deal with, uh, we work with community members who are being denied basic services and supports mm. based on the premise that those services and supports are either too complicated to deliver or to expect, like, not value for money for mm. the NDIS. Mm. And we've got backwards and forwards for years sometimes fighting for, like, what somebody needs to get up out of bed and have a shower every day, mm. you know? So we do that on one hand with government, and then on the other hand, uh, just a couple of months ago, the federal government just comes out and says, hey, everyone, we're going to spend $368 billion on the acquisition of eight nuclear submarines that won't be delivered until, like, I'm 60 years old. <laughs> um, we've never run a nuclear anything before in Australia. It'll require a massive nuclear waste dump that will be with us for millions of years. Hey, thanks, everybody. That's fine. Bye. Like, it, so it's a complete double standard yeah. of the system there. So what I say is, in terms of achievable, um, achievable is defined as, does it deliver what people need? Mm. Like Literally, the NDIS should deliver what people need in the way that they need it, where and when they need it. Mm. And that should be the simple goal. So measured against that metric, and in terms of how we pay for it, we make rich people pay their fair share of tax, we make corporations pay their fair share of tax, and we don't buy eight nuclear submarines. <laughs> <laughs> let's not do that. How about instead of doing that, let's not. Um, so basically, if you do those things, then what can you do? You can make sure that every single person, brace yourself for this, M. every single person that rings the NDIS no. will be able to speak to a human being. No, I... And what? we'll be able to have an individual planner with the powers to change their plan. They'll be able to follow them through their life as a participant, gaining the knowledge and understanding of that individual's support needs. And imagine if we hired people at the NDIS who are actually disabled, who actually have experience with the people that they're helping make the plans of. So when I say I need an OT to help with my sensory issues, the person on the other end is like, oh, man, yeah, halogen lights are the worst. Like, let's, you know, like, 
they get it. Whereas I am abled until proven disabled, it feels like. Absolutely. Yeah. So you need to be able to hire more people so that you can have a better experience with those people. They need to be trained properly. Yeah. Uh, so that there's this, this discrimination that we often hear of, you know, people having the experience of like, yeah, but has your uh, is Down syndrome a permanent condition? Like oh. those kind of things that still problems that we have. Um, we need better IT. I like this is sounds a bit nerdy, but you actually need a ICT system yeah. that allows the capturing of the complexity of a person's life. Yes, in that system, so that they can tell their story once, not have to retell it, and that information is transferred. So, for instance, at the moment. You have to list your primary and secondary disability. Now, if I'm somebody with a physical disability, say I've got cerebral palsy, and I'm also an autistic person, there's no such thing as a primary disability in that context. That's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. So we've got to tackle things like that, and also a radical notion of like people being able to see a draft plan. Wouldn't that be great? Being able to see a draft plan before it's no, it's off. like you get what you get, and you don't get upset. That's the rules. Yeah. You wouldn't buy a garden shed that way, let alone support for a family member. So, yeah, bits and pieces, like changes like that would make a real difference, I think, to people. Um, but more than anything, it's that culture shift from something mm. that currently gatekeeps resources mm -hmm. to something that flags unmet need, you know? Can and I that's the mindset that's yeah. shift. Yeah, I know the cultural attitudes around... Invisible disabilities from my end is fucking shit, man. Like, yeah. all I want is, like, all, you know, I, I constantly say and I want to remind everyone, like, your lived experience isn't the only one ever and I need you to believe in things that aren't necessarily visible and you know what? People experience things you actually have no idea about and can we just all yeah. hold all of that in our hearts when we are dealing with maybe someone like me and I just, I want to ask you, like, do you, don't bullshit me. <laughs> I, I, I won't, I promise, I promise. Do I'll you, give you an unvarnished answer. Do you think, honestly, because we are so bad as a country at taking care of the communities that need it the most, mm. do you think in your political lifetime things will improve? Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, because... In my experience, I actually think the, the Australian community, like mm. people, mm. people are actually generally great, mm -hmm. you know, and want to do good things and support and help each other, right? Mm. I, I'm one of these people that believes that the natural setting of human beings, the vast majority of human beings, the, the natural, like, state of us is actually good. Whoa. You know, like... Do you? The, the, I, I really do, and the, the behaviour, the the the, uh, the kind of the, the destructiveness, the selfishness, the, the all of these things that we see, they're not a natural product of human behaviour or something innate mm. in inside us. It's the result of conditioning by people in positions of power. Mm. People in the positions of power, whether it's politics, whether it's media, uh, whether it's just people that you know occupy a position of power within a local kind of power structure. Mm. Um, we are conditioned as a, as a community um, to sometimes act and behave in these kind of negative ways. Mm. 
Um, and one of the one of the key tricks is that people in positions of power have become very good at very effective at dehumanizing a particular group in our society mm-hmm. and and then pitting the the humanized group against the dehumanized group mm-hmm. uh, so I actually think that that is a product of the decisions made at that kind of political decision-making level particularly. Um, and so the job is to replace those people um, with act, like with actual good humans mm. um, that are willing to work with the community to achieve good things. Like the approach that we have taken as a team, um, as a Greens MP, as my, you know, collective kind of work team of fabulous human beings mm. that I am lucky enough to work with. Um, overwhelmingly, uh, our team is made up of women um, and there are many fabulous neurodiverse uh, and disabled members of that team. Mm-hmm. The approach that we have taken is to begin our work and ground that work in uh, a, a response to the need of the community and a belief that if we can use our resources and and our position, unexpected position, like I was elected at 22. Wild. Um, that is wild. I was unexpectedly catapulted into this <laughs> space and, and the team and myself made the decision that we were going to use this unexpected opportunity mm. to blow the hinges off the doors to the to these rooms full of hashtag powerful people and actually get results for the community and work with the power of the community to achieve things. Um, and like that's some that's an active decision that we made. And those are the kind of more people that we need in those decision making spaces. And that will deliver the the change we want to see. Like when you say, do I think change is possible within my lifetime? Like the power and the pride and the capacity that has developed in the disability community over the last five years um, is stunning to the point where we have gone from, you know, many of us gone from like, please don't, you know, a, a, a mentality of, of not even a mentality, like an expectation or not even an expectation. What's the word I'm looking for? Basically a, a power dynamic mm. is the word I'm looking for where 10 years ago, we achieved the NDIS's foundation. And I think many in places of of political power believe the response of the disability community would be to go like, oh, thank you so much. We're just so grateful that you've done anything. Mm. And in fact, the very opposite has happened. Mm. We as a a community have gone, no, 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 this was the baseline. Yeah, the bar is low. Like, come on. (laughs) The bottom of what we need. You will not cut our plans. You will not kick us off. You will not put us under independent assessments. In fact, you will give us what we need. Mm. And while we're doing that, you will also get rid of uh, ableism in in employment spaces, education, Mm. healthcare. Now, there's still a huge long way to go Mm. in that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we have every faith that we can get there together. (laughs) Look at him go! Senator Jordan Steele-John of the Greens, thank you very much for giving me your time and your energy and your heart and your skill. Um, I see you. I see the work you're doing and I appreciate you. Um, Anything I can do to help you, I will. But I just thank you. 
Thank you very much. No, thank you, Em. It's an absolute pleasure um, to chat with you, my friend. I will come back and do it any time <laughs> and I really look forward to working with you in the future. Thank you, my darling. Thank you very much. This is Emsolation. Oh, here she is back again, Lady McSicky Sick. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, if you're listening to this on Thursday, the day it comes out, you have one more day to get your ADHD submission into the inquiry. So please think about doing that. I'll make sure all the links go out in our newsletter today. I know it's tough, but I managed to do it the day, like today, which is the Wednesday, because I'm an ADHD and I need a tight timeline to get motivated. <laughs> My goodness, I'm so, I'm delirious now. We'll be back next week. I'm sure my health will be with me. We need to discuss the Beyonce concert. We have so many things to debrief on now. Michael's been in London for a full week and also Extra will be out Tuesday as usual. Our AMA will be out for all our subscribers on Friday too. Have a wonderful weekend or week ahead whenever you're listening and we'll chat soon, my loves. Bye. Like what you heard and want more? Emsolation is a totally independent neurodivergent female-led podcast, which you can help support by subscribing to Emsolation Extra. Get exclusive bonus episodes every Tuesday. Question time with Em and Michael, pre-show meetings, videos of the podcast recording, pre-sale access to live events and discount merch, a weekly newsletter and so much more. Help us by subscribing now or gift a subscription to someone you love at emsolation.supercast.com or get the link via Emsolation Socials. Emsolation with M. Rossiano is recorded at Down the Hill Studios. Hosted by M. Rossiano with Michael Lucas. Executive produced by Benjamin Wosley. Produced by M. Rossiano. Edited by Ezekiel Fenn. Socials by M. Rossiano, Benjamin Wosley, Lauren Miko and Marcella Rossiano Barrow with assistance from Jem Evans and Georgia Watts. Follow us on Instagram at Emsolation Podcast and join other Emsolators at the Emsolation Group on Facebook. The answer is Harry Styles. Please take the time to share this podcast with a friend. Give us a five-star rating and make sure you're following us on whatever podcast app you use by hitting the follow button. Thanks for listening and we can't wait to chat with you again soon. Bye.